Okay, if you've got your Bibles um, or apps or whatever you have, if you could turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to pick it up from verse 13 in just a moment. So we are just continuing this journey through the Gospel of Mark, just incredible uh, Gospel, uh, for so many reasons. We've gone through uh, a lot of the reasons why... Um, you know, we have this gospel and the fact that it was very written very early on, uh, so much so that it seems that Paul makes allusion to the fact of his existence. Um, but uh, Mark just gives us so many little snapshots um, of Jesus' ministry. And it all seems to be with the intent of just trying to explain, just communicate just how wonderful, how incredible Jesus is. You know, we live in a world that is uh, skeptical because they've heard so many lies and so many half-truths. You know, I overheard a conversation the other day and somebody made the comment, well, we don't even know that Jesus existed. And I just thought it's just such ignorance that people could even make statements like that. But they've heard that from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. And, you know... There is no doubt that Jesus existed. There is no doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, and we have these first-hand eyewitness accounts of what took place. You know, and these records are so verified and authenticated that we have no reason to question them. Uh, And again, if you have any concern, uh, I would encourage you to look at the work by Dr. Bill Cooper, particularly the authenticity of the New Testament, part one and part two. In part one, he goes through the Gospels and the book of Acts, and part two, the rest of the New Testament. Uh, And uh, the the discoveries that that, uh, we've now made because of archaeological finds and because of what we have with the Dead Sea Scrolls and so many other things, you know, we have no doubt that what we're looking at here is a true account of real events that took place. And so we, we carry on and we jump into verse 13. Last time, if you remember, um, Jesus had left um, the house in Capernaum. They'd been moving down through the area of Galilee. Uh, they come to the area of, of um, Judea. And Jesus is asked this question, the, the attempt by the Pharisees is to trip Jesus up, and they ask him this question about a divorce. And Jesus deals with that, bringing them right back to Scripture, right back to God's ordained plan right from the beginning. And then we carry on, and now verse 13 we read, And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. A couple of things to, to highlight here. Firstly, the word that we have in the Greek for brought, um, it's phospharo, which suggests that they brought the children to Jesus for dedication. Now, this isn't something that's new, that's something that the, the Protestant church has done uh, for those that don't want to baptize their babies as infants. You know, sometimes people seem to think that's where dedication came in. It's not. It goes all the way back. We find it rooted in Scripture um, that pe- the parents wanted to dedicate their children uh, to God um, for safekeeping, that God would watch over them. We see, of course, the example in the Old Testament uh, with Hannah wanting to bring and dedicate Samuel. There's an example even earlier than that of Jephthah, who seemingly dedicates his daughter to the Lord for the rest of her life, uh, that she wouldn't marry, that she would just serve the Lord for the rest of her days. Um, and, and so this situation, in the word, as I say, the implication... I've had a quote here from uh, F.F. Bruce. He says this, uh, the word is commonly used of sacrifices. Uh, That's the word that we have here, um, and the word brought. Um, And it suggests the idea of dedication. So that's the the kind of the idea of what's going on here. Now, let me just read this to you by Spurgeon. 
He says, will you be very angry if I say that a boy is more worth saving than a man? It is it's infinite mercy, so it is infinite mercy on God's part to save those who are 70. For what good can they do with the burnt end of their lives? When we get to be 50 or 60, we are almost worn out. And if we spent all our early days with the devil, what remains for God? But these dear boys and girls, there is something to be made out of them. If now they yield themselves to Christ, they may have a long, happy and holy day before them in which they may serve God with all their hearts. Who knows what glory God may have of them? Heathen lands may call them blessed. Whole nations may be enlightened by them. Now, in one sense, I, I, I totally get and understand what Spurgeon is saying. You know, that we need to invest in our young people, our children. We need to teach them the things of God. You know, we're blessed because we have people like, I would say, in recent years, Chuck Smith, who from a child knew the Holy Scriptures. And God used him in an incredible way because right from a young age, the Word of God was sown into that man's life. And the work that was accomplished through him and through his ministry for the kingdom is immeasurable. You know, even people like Spurgeon themselves, people like Oswald Chambers, and many others that we can cite through church history who, who began young in the faith, trusting God, learning of the things of God, reading and studying his word. That's not, though, to belittle those that come to faith later in life. Because some of the greatest influences in my life, people like Dave Hunt and Chuck Misler, whilst certainly servants of the Lord for, for a large proportion of their life, it was in their latter years that they really stepped out into ministry. For much of Chuck Misler's life, he was in the corporate boardrooms of America in business. And it was only towards the end of his life that he got into the ministry of teaching in the way that he did. And it blessed so many because of that. Dave Hunt, again, it was in the latter years of his life that he really stepped out and started to teach and to go around and minister in such a powerful way. And so many others that God can use so that it's not to belittle those that come to the Lord later in life because God can use people even if they've only been saved for one hour or one minute. You look at the thief on the cross and what the Lord accomplished through him. So it's not in any way to belittle those that come to the Lord later in life. But there is something special, and I do understand what Spurgeon is saying here, about children when we sow into them, when they grow up and when they learn Scripture, and when they go out and they can be such a, a witness. We need to be praying for our young children praying that the Lord will protect them. Now notice what happens here with the disciples because they rebuke those that brought them. You know, we don't need to protect Jesus. Maybe the disciples thought Jesus was really very busy and had other things to do with his time. And so the disciples kind of step in here. Almost like bodyguards. No, 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 you, you can't come to Jesus. He, he's already busy doing lots of other things and you know, he hasn't got time for the menial, trivial things. Yeah, it's not for us to decide who should come. I sometimes think that we think that it is, though, because we'll look at people and we'll decide who we think is deserving. And don't pretend you don't do it, because we've all done that. We've all looked at somebody and we thought, well, they, they would never believe. And then we look at somebody else, maybe who we have some sort of affinity with, and think, oh, they would make a lovely Christian. 
You know, it's not about the natural. It's not about abilities that people possess. It's what God does in a life. And sometimes somebody who seems so unlikely to be a servant of Jesus could become the greatest of all. You look at people like Paul. Who would have thought that the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was, this Pharisee, who hated Christians, who was trying to tear down the church, who would have thought that he would have become the man that he was for the Lord? And although he says, of course, that he's the least of all the apostles and so on, I mean, he, he's great in our eyes, isn't he? What an ambassador, what a witness, what a role model to follow, who gave his life for Jesus. And because of him, we have obviously so much of the New Testament. Now, it's not for us to make a decision about who does and who doesn't come to Jesus. It's not for us to decide who does and doesn't get to hear the gospel. But sadly, we often apply our own understanding to it. And we'll kind of decide who we're going to share the gospel with if we get opportunity. And it tends to be the people that we think are worthy, think will be the right ones. But, you know, we've been beneficiaries of this amazing grace. And yet, somehow, deep within us is something that would deny that same grace to others. Look at you. Look at your life. Would you have chosen you? Would you have done in you the work that God has done and is doing? Honestly, if, if I could, if I had the courage to put up on the screen this morning my life, and the things I struggle with. You'd see the grace of God. I mean, you probably wouldn't want to come back to this church, but the same goes because if I knew what was in your lives, I probably wouldn't want you to come. So, you know, the truth of it is that we are aware in our own lives the grace of God and what he does in us. The mercy. Well, we need to show that same love. And, and this example here where the disciples start to push these people away. Just in the flesh, acting according to what they think is right. And let me just actually, I'm just going to go back and read to you this. There's another quote of Spurgeon. Um, he, he recalls a, a prayer um, that his mother prayed for him once. And he says, this was the prayer. It, well, this is the quote. He says, then came my mother's prayer. And some of the words of a mother's prayer we should never forget even when our hair is grey. He says, I remember on one occasion her praying thus, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. And Spurgeon says, That thought of a mother bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. I just just like the way that Spurgeon suddenly got the reality that he's heard the gospel. He has no excuse. We'll talk more about those kind of things in a while. But we have a duty to teach children. But we read verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. That's not the kind of thing you want to read when your name is in this context. Jesus was displeased with his disciples. Much displeased. This is the king of kings. This is the the judge of the whole earth. And he said unto them, Suffer the children, allow, permit the children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Jesus, once again, 
teaching the disciples. And bear in mind that what we're looking at here is Peter's account, first-hand account that he's giving to Mark and Mark's recording for us. Peter was here. Peter saw these things. Peter was one of those and maybe the first one to step forward and try and push the children away. And still, these years later, as this is being recorded, as he's sharing it with Mark, those words ring in his ears. That Jesus said, spoke to Peter and no doubt looked around and possibly even caught Peter in the eye. Suffer the little children and let them come to me. And forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And suddenly the disciples are now thinking, what does he mean by that? David Guzik says this, How could children receive such a blessing from Jesus? And he says this, Because children can receive the blessing of Jesus without trying to make themselves worthy of it or pretending they do not need it. We need to receive God's blessing in the same way. That's what Jesus meant when he said, for of such is the kingdom of God. If we want entrance into the kingdom of God, this is how we receive it. By not pretending or believing that we're worthy or or pretending we don't need it. This may have really struck Peter because you remember John's account where he's in the upper room and Jesus comes to wash the disciples' feet and Peter first of all, doesn't want Jesus to do it. Pretends he doesn't need it. And then goes overboard and says, well, in that case, watch all of me. And Jesus carries on and says, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. You know, when I have opportunity to buy gifts for my children, they don't come to me and say, oh, but daddy, are, are you sure I deserve it? Daddy, can you can you afford it? They just gratefully receive it. And that's how we should be. Salvation is a gift. Sanctification is a gift. And often we get past the salvation thing because we have to. And we accept that it's a free gift, we can't do anything to earn it. Oh, but boy, do we try and sanctify ourselves. We put so much effort into trying to get right with God. But it's a gift. Jesus himself, Paul records in the, or Luke records for us at the end of the book of Acts. We're sanctified through faith that's in Jesus. Through faith. Not through works, not through anything we can do. And so often we try so hard to to stop doing this or to start doing that or to try to have some sort of pattern and system to our devotional life or whatever. And Jesus just says, stop all of that. Just be like a child. Just accept that God has placed within you his spirit to transform you. Stop fighting. Just let him do it. Stop thinking it's about you. In the verse 16 we read, And he took them up in his arms, and put his hands upon them and blessed them. What a moment for those children. But as the disciples again, just looking on, 
In a sense, that's what their hearts were crying out for. They wanted that kind of intimacy, that kind of relationship. But there were so many things in the way for them. But Jesus just takes his children and they gladly receive. That's how the kingdom of God works. All about him, all about what he has done and what he gives. Verse 17 carries on in a slight change of theme. When he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. Just just look at this. This is an incredible picture that's, that's painted by Mark. And let me just remind you again, we said in the uh, one of the opening sessions, this is the only gospel that records this account. And some scholars think that this individual that we're looking at here might even be John Mark because he records him because he gives us these details. So conjecture, we can't prove it. It's interesting. It may be, it may not be. It doesn't matter, but I'll just share it with you. But this individual, whoever he is, comes running. So Jesus obviously, he's heard that Jesus is in the area, comes running and kneels before him. And then this statement, and asked him, it says, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This idea here, this, this statement, was got a, a bold statement in itself. There is no record in the Talmud or any of the Jewish writings of a rabbi ever being addressed in this way. The statement saying good, as Jesus will highlight in a moment, wasn't just a polite way of greeting. It was a statement that saying that Jesus was good. Now, God is the only one who is good. This is a statement that is way outside the box in terms of the current thinking of the day, that Jesus had to be far more than just any rabbi, that he was good. If he's good, he must be God. Jesus questions him and says unto him, why callest thou me good? And he says, there is none good but one, and that is God. In other words, if I am good, it's because I'm God. If I'm God, then I'm good. No human can claim that. No human is good. We've all inherited sin from Adam. That's why we all need a saviour. Verse 19, Thou knowest the commandments, Jesus says to him. Now this is interesting. We'll see in a moment that the commandments are grouped into two groups, two halves if you like. Thou knowest the commandments and, and the ones he gives are if you like from the the right-hand side of this, I'll show you in a second. It says, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. They're all commandments relating to our relationship with our fellow men. And Jesus answered and said unto him, oh sorry, he answered uh, to Jesus and said unto him, Master, all of these I have observed from my youth. Well, that's quite a statement. If you look at the the commandments as we have them, the first four are all about our relationship with God. When Jesus summarized the, the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God. That really summarizes the first tablet of stone. 
that Moses was given on Mount Sinai. The second tablet is the ones that really deal with loving your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That, that, that is the, the summary of the commandments. The second part of the commandments, that's what Jesus listed to this man. You, you, you call me good. And he, notice his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not saying what must I do to have good health or what must I do to be wealthy or to be successful. He understands enough to know that the right question to be asking is one about eternity. Not one about just here and now and give me a blessed time. Sadly, we have a whole sway of the church that follows after this idea of blessing and prosperity and so on. So deceived, thinking that that is by some way what God has for us. That's not to say that God doesn't bless individuals. Of course he does, but we're not here to gain wealth and prosperity and all those kind of things. We're here to learn to love him. And more often than not, the Lord will allow us to go through trials in order to learn those lessons. Now, the, the commandments, as we see, broken down into these two parts, and it's the first part that, or sorry, the, the second part, the second tablet, as it were, um, that Jesus lists for him. J. Vernon McGee says this, the first section of the commandments is labeled uh, pietas, that has to do with man's relationship to God. The second section is labeled as probitas and has to do with man's relationship with man. Our Lord did not speak of the man's relationship to God, but of his relationship to man. He could meet the standard of the second section and said he'd kept them all. That's the situation as we have it. David Guzik makes this comment. He says in Philippians 3, 6, Paul said that he thought he kept all the commandments as a religious Jew. He wrote of his thinking at that time that he was concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Yet in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, Jesus gave us the real meaning of the law. It goes to the heart, not just to the actions. You can have a heart filled with adultery even if you never commit it. A heart filled with murder even if you never do it. A heart that steals even if you never steal. God looks at the heart as well as the actions. He carries on and says, instead of challenging the man's fulfillment of the law, which Jesus had every right to do, Jesus instead took him further down his own path. So you want to find fulfillment and salvation by doing for God? Then here, do it all. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? If we try and get right with God by the law, we have to keep all of it. He says, Jesus wanted the man to see the futility of finding fulfillment or salvation through doing. But the man wouldn't see it. You see, when challenged, you will see, he falls down because whilst his relationship with his fellow men may have been good, and he may have been very pious, and he may have done all the things he claims to have done. I mean, of course, nobody could truly say they've never lied. They've never taken something that wasn't theirs and... They've never borne false witness. But that aside, let's assume he was a very upright individual. He still falls down because of his relationship with God. We see in a moment that idolatry was present because he had something that he loved more than God. And that was his wealth. That was all the treasure that accumulated in this life. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. 
Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus saw that there was sincerity there. This man has come asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We, we don't see anyone else in the Gospels coming and asking about this, with the possible exception of, of Nicodemus, maybe. But this man comes asking about eternal life. I mean, it would be a great place if people in the world today would come and ask this question. At least we could have a conversation with them. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, one thing thou lack. <laughs> I mean, I kind of feel that if it had been me or maybe us, it would have been, well, there's 273 things that you lack. <laughs> he just says one thing. But actually, this one thing is the big thing, isn't it? Because what Jesus is getting to is his relationship with God. It's not, he hasn't put God first. You know, as Chuck Mizzer used to say, God wants to be number one on a list of one. Not number one on a list of ten. We're to have no other gods before him. That expression, that idea means that we should have no other gods in his presence. Before, before the throne of God, there should be no other God, just our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is one thing that I lack is. And actually, you know, everything else is really summarized under this because if you get this one thing right, then everything else will be sorted. It's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added. One thing that I lack is go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. This man's just come running to Jesus. He's bowed before Jesus. He's called him good master. And Jesus says, okay, well, sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And verse 22, such a sad verse. It says, and he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. It was a price just a little bit too high for this man. He didn't want to give up all the things that he had. He had another God. He wasn't prepared to let go of that God. And how sad that his question, what must I do to gain eternal life? I mean, first of the problem is, what must I do? We can't do anything. Jesus tries to get that through to him. He's asking about eternal life, and he turns down this offer of eternal life, effectively, because Jesus is telling him what he must do for the sake of possessions, things that won't last. People often say they want to follow Jesus, but they don't, they're not prepared to give up the other things in their lives. You know, we could gain the world, but we'll lose our, our soul, and there's no benefit in that. I found this in one of the commentaries. It said, money will buy a bed, but it will not buy sleep. Money will buy food, but it will not buy an appetite. Money will buy medicine, but it will not buy health. Money will buy a house, but it will not buy a home. Money will buy a diamond, but it will not buy love. Money will buy a church pew, or uncomfortable chair, if you will, but it will not buy salvation. Yeah, there's a lot of things that money can do in this life, but it has no eternal value. And, and it, it's so almost paradoxical that this man comes looking for eternal life and won't give up the things of the here and now for to gain that. And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? See, people try so hard, don't they, to, to earn things, 
to acquire things. And, and it is, going back to Genesis 3, it's by the sweat of our brow that we acquire things in this life. That's how we work. And people get this stuff, and then it's theirs. And they're not prepared to let it go. And Jesus says, how difficult, how hardly, how difficult it is for those that have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said unto them, children. (laughs) Interesting, we've just been talking about children, and he brings it back to that kind of mindset. Children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Now notice what Jesus says, because it's really what Paul will later speak to Timothy about. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Not money. Money in and of itself is not the problem. It's the love of money. And as Jesus said here, it's half of them that trust in riches. That's the problem. In a sense, just having riches is not necessarily the issue. But it's when it comes to the point that you trust in them, that your life becomes centered around them. One quote I read said this, Riches present a difficulty because they tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for the age to come. It is also true that riches must often be acquired at the expense of acquiring God. I've seen that so many times. People that have a great career, they go off into their career and they abandon the opportunity to serve God, to pursue serving mammon, serving money. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they were astonished, out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, said, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Now, you may have heard, and some of the commentaries will allude to this idea that there was a gate in Jerusalem. That when the evening came, the main gates would be shut to protect the city from undesirables or anybody that might come in and try to cause problem and so there was this one gate that was left open but it was very low so much so that if you came with your camel which of course was the largest mammal in the in the middle east at that time you'd have to physically unload your camel and you can just take your goods through and then you kind of drag your camel through on its knees and so on and some people say that's the idea and they kind of give this little spiritual story about you know how we have to unload all our worldly goods and and so on and it makes a nice story but there's no real scriptural basis for it What Jesus is saying here is that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. It's as simple as that. The the word here for needle is needle, like a sewing needle. In fact, Luke, when he gives this account, actually refers to a surgical needle. Now, Luke, being a a doctor, is just using something from from that he understands. And we're just talking about the eye of a needle. I, 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 my eyes are getting worse. Um, I've been to um, one of those places they check your eyes. What was it? I don't know. Yeah, Opt- opticians. There you go. And um, 
I, I can see it at a distance, but the things that are close to me now start to get blurry. And, and a couple of times I've tried to do a little bit of needlework and things, um, fixing some of the girls' teddies and things that I do. Because um, that's a dad job, by the way. Um, and, and I've just trying to feed the, the thread through an eye. I find that hard. Jesus is saying that it is impossible. This is exactly what he's saying. This is why the disciples are astonished out of measure. It's not, oh, it's really hard then to be saved. No, Jesus is saying it's impossible to be saved. In this context, if you have a love of money, if you have a love of the things of this world, and it doesn't have to be just money, it could be almost anything else. If you have a love for anything other than just God himself as your number one, you cannot be saved. You have to give up the right to yourself. You have to accept that we are sinners. And when you are prepared to lay that aside, well, then you can be saved. When you put your faith and your trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus says, that with God it is possible. Why? Because God has made a way. Now, the world doesn't like this. The world doesn't like the fact that the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The world wants to have lots of options. The world wants to say, well, you could follow this God or you could follow that God. And all roads lead to the same place. That's nonsense. Just think about that from a logical point of view. What we're saying is, potentially, that we have this God who allows himself to go by all sorts of different names and be worshipped in all sorts of different ways who allows his children to fight amongst each other and that any road will get to him eventually anyway. It's crazy. And particularly when you start to look at what the different religions believe. They're totally contradictory. You can't have them sat one beside another. You know, if there was found a cure for some otherwise incurable disease and you go and sit before a doctor and the doctor explains to you your condition and then says, but there is a cure. And let's just for argument say, so the doctor says, you have to drink raspberry juice. Would anybody sit there and say, well, that's a bit dogmatic, isn't it? That's too too narrow. I don't like that. I prefer apple juice. Can I drink apple juice instead? It's ludicrous, and yet that's what the world does. There is a way. The miracle is not that there is one way. The fact that the miracle is that there is a way to God. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Now, it's, as it says here, all things with God are possible, and it is possible because of Jesus to have a relationship with God once again. And then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Peter thinking about the way that they didn't have riches, they didn't have wealth and things. They had a career, of course. They, he was a fisherman. But this rich young ruler wouldn't let go of the things he had. But Peter's saying, but we did. We, we gave it all up and we followed after you. And Jesus answered and said, 
Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels that he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. You see, Jesus gives us the list of the things that we must abandon effectively there. The things that mustn't come before him. Let me read that, that list to you. Homes, possessions, family, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, a wife, children, lands, your day job, whatever it is that provides your income. If you give up those things, then you'll receive a hundredfold in this time. And you know, those of us that have done that, those of us that have made that decision to truly give up everything for Jesus, oh, he does give us so much more in this life and that promise of eternal life. And then we have this statement that many, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We could probably spend a whole morning digging into that and unpacking it more, but move on verse 32 and they which were in the way going up to Jerusalem sorry they were in the way going up to Jerusalem Jesus went before them and they were amazed and as they followed they were afraid and he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him so Jesus again getting this focus on his mission and where he's going and why he's going saying behold we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles and they shall mock him and scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him and the third day he shall rise again once again this is a real challenge for people that would argue that there was no resurrection because Jesus is saying before the time we're going to Jerusalem I'm going to be arrested I'm going to be mocked I'm going to be scourged I'll be spat upon they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead you know Jesus knew exactly what was waiting him and the fact that he was going to rise again the disciples after the crucifixion were terrified they had no desire to go and try and concoct some myth about Jesus rising from the dead They were fearful for their very lives. Now, as Paul makes it very clear, the resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. It's the foundation of what we believe. It's one of the most attested and strongest facts of history. Anybody wants to look into it, so many people have and have realized that Jesus is alive. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him. Now, once again, we've had this already. They come back now. They were talking about this earlier in their journey. Saying, Master, we would that that would that I should do for us whatsoever we should desire. Kind of a bold statement, really, straight off the bat, there, isn't it? You know, I, I think you know, Jesus, you should do you know, whatever we ask of you. <laughs> and he said unto them, What would you that I should do for you? Kind of playing the game with them here for a moment. And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Oh, nothing much then. <laughs> But Jesus said unto them, You know not what you ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They had no idea what was coming. And they said unto him, We can. Speaking out of ignorance. 
And Jesus actually then goes on and says, and said unto them, you should actually indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, you shall be baptized. See, Jesus had to give his life. That was that baptism, baptism into death. And this is exactly what the disciples themselves endured. Romans 6 verse 3 says, Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. And you look at these saints, Stephen, stoned to death, James, beheaded, Matthias, tied down, and vultures ate him alive. Jude, also known as Thaddeus, was crucified and shot with arrows. Nathaniel was skinned alive and crucified. Philip, hanged. Andrew, crucified in Egypt. Mark, eventually, would be dragged behind chariots until he died. Matthew, flayed and then beheaded. Luke, crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, thrown from the temple. Thomas, later impaled in India. Simon Zelotes, sawn in pieces. Peter was crucified upside down. And Paul, of course, beheaded in Rome. You know, it's been said before, a martyr is not one who dies for Christ, but one who unconditionally lives for him. But these individuals were baptized with that baptism that Jesus spoke of here. They all gave their lives. And why? Because they knew it was true. They knew the resurrection was true. They knew that what they were dying for was real. Jesus goes on and says, But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give. It shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. The Father has already chosen. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John because they'd gone round their back and they'd asked Jesus this question, trying to see if they could get one jump ahead and secure this top spot. So Jesus called them to him and said unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Now Jesus has already told them this, but once again, showing this grace that he does. Whosoever you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as they went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great number of people, and blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. Now, some people try and say there's a contradiction here because uh, in Matthew and Luke, seemingly there's two blind men. We're not given their names, but Mark just alludes to one, and he gives us the name, this Bartimaeus. Well, it doesn't mean there's a contradiction. Just because Mark mentions one doesn't mean that there was another that wasn't there. But he specifically highlights Bartimaeus. And I think one of the reasons is because of what we read. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, this is what the people were saying. Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Because no doubt he heard all this kerfuffle. There was a religious procession going off to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Just as often there is on a Sunday morning, a religious procession of people going to church. Not everybody believing or 
having faith, but just a religious procession nonetheless. And of course, Bartimaeus sat there. It's a great place to be, by the way, because no doubt he'd have had his coat out on the floor and begging for money. And people on the way up to Jerusalem, thinking about the feasts and sacrificing and offering to God and being right with God. And of course, no doubt their conscience pricking them as they walk past this blind man. And they're throwing a few coins in as they go. Might stand them in better stead when they get to Jerusalem. Who knows, you know? And he hears a kerfuffle. So the question is asked, and he's told, it's Jesus of Nazareth. That, that, by the way, is a title that we're very familiar with, but actually it's a fairly derogatory term. Because the idea was that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. So by saying Jesus of Nazareth wasn't really a compliment. It wasn't a title, in a sense, speaking of his greatness or anything else. It was just more of a derogatory term than anything else. And so notice the response. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Incredible that he's made this connection. He's obviously heard about Jesus. The miracles that have been done. The healings and so on. And maybe he was aware of the scriptures. In fact, because of the context, I'm sure that he must have been in Isaiah and elsewhere that spoke of the Messiah opening the eyes of the blind. And Bartimaeus has come to the conclusion that this one that is coming is the Messiah. This is the son of David. You know, the disciples haven't given Jesus this title at this point. And certainly the rabbis or the, the crowd hadn't done. But this blind man could see more than all those who had normal sight. And this was his moment. And first of all, we read many charged him that he should hold his peace. He said, oh, wait, be quiet. Shh. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. You know, there's no other record of Jesus ever passing by this way again. After the resurrection, Jesus doesn't come this route. This was his one opportunity. You know, it's that way for many people that there'll be one moment in your life that you'll have the opportunity to cry out to the son of David. And you need to take that moment. You may not get another chance. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Recognizing that this is the one that the scriptures spoke about that had been prophesied. Who is going to come and sit on the throne of David, re-establishing the kingdom. Jesus stood still as he's walking. He hears this cry coming through the crowd and stops and commanded him to be called. And so they all go running. Bartimaeus, he wants you. So they, they get Bartimaeus up and they, they bring Bartimaeus. And they call the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort. Hey, great news. He, he, he wants to see you. Rise, he calleth thee. And notice what he does. In contrast to the rich young ruler we saw a moment ago, who wouldn't let go of his wealth. He casts away his garment. That's not just throwing away a coat that doesn't mean anything to him anymore. In that coat would have been all the coins, all the money that have been collected through the day. Maybe even the last few days as people have been going up to Jerusalem and throwing in money. He casts it all away. It means nothing to him. Because he's been called by Jesus. 
cast away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What will thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I may receive my sight. That expression we have translated Lord, actually we only have that twice in the New Testament. The only other time the expression in the Greek is used is in the garden on the morning of the resurrection when Mary turns around after Jesus calls her name and she calls him Rabboni, Lord. It's that recognition of this one whom she loves. And even before Bartimaeus is healed, he makes this statement. He calls him precious Lord effectively. That I may receive my sight. And, and, and this incredible request, Bartimaeus seemingly aware that this has to be a miracle. In our eyes, we've got 137 million light-sensitive cells. There's billions of connections to your brain. Your light, your eye is so complex that to solve all the problems, making a, an eye that couldn't see to see again, is an incredible act. If you want to know a bit more detail, I encourage you to listen to Joe Foch's teaching on this session because he spends the first half going through all the medical side of how complex your eye is staggering but in an instant verse 52 says and jesus said unto him go thy way thy faith has made thee whole jesus called him and he had the faith to respond to the one he recognized was the messiah and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. And that's what we do. We follow Jesus. As I said, this blind man could see more than so many others that had their natural sight. And when his eyes are truly opened, he follows Jesus. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we do thank you for this time this morning, Lord, that we could fellowship and just learn and grow together. Lord, thank you for these lessons Father, help us not to hold on to anything of this world. Lord, it is all fading away. Lord, there's nothing in this world that will last. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Lord, hold, help us to hold on to the things that really do matter. And Lord, the most important thing is our relationship with you. Lord, may we respond when you call. Lord, may our eyes be open to you. Lord, just impress these things upon our hearts, we pray, that we would follow you all our days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.